Welcome, and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. When you study Christianity, at some point you encounter the last book, Revelation. It offers a glimpse into how things end. Today, First Pres Executive Director Chris Pan preaches on Revelation, and you might be surprised at what he has to say. Uh, good morning, I'm Chris Pan. I'm the Executive Director of the church. Uh, thank you again, worship team, for and congregation for singing and uh, starting off our morning with such delightful worship. It is only going to go downhill from here. I'm sorry. Uh, that energy level, we try to sustain it. But uh, uh, hello to everyone here in the sanctuary. Hello to everybody online. Uh, our sermon title today is How It Ends. Uh, we are following the lectionary, which is a schedule of readings from the Bible that churches around the world have used for centuries. And our passage today is from the end of the last book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Uh, and a few weeks ago, I preached in that passage from the beginning of the book of Revelation from chapter 1, uh, where God speaks and declares that he is the God who is and who was and who is to come, a God who is outside of time, a God who is present in our presence, a God who redeems the past and a God who holds the future. Uh, and today's passage is from the end of the book, how it ends. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 is the first time God speaks. Revelation chapter 21 is the second time God speaks in the book of Revelation. And it's a reminder that whatever God has to say today and any day is much more important than anything I'll have to say from this pulpit. And so as we go through our sermon today, ask yourself these two questions. One, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to me? And two, what does he want me to do about it? Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we declare that you are good and you are glorious and we delight in praising you and worshiping you. We continue to invite your Holy Spirit into this time to transform us. We don't want to be informed, we want to be transformed. We don't want to be informed, we want to be inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so may you open our eyes and open our ears. And may you speak to us now. May you speak to us now. What are you saying to us? And what do you want us to do about it? We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And all God's children say, amen. amen. Uh, a dear church member emailed me after I preached last time on Revelation. And they said, uh, when I saw that the passage was given me from Revelation, I said, oh, because Revelation is so hard to understand. Um, and she was very complimentary afterwards, but I get it. Revelation is a weird book. Uh, it's got dragons from the sea and a beast with the head of a leopard and the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. It's all a bit weird and hard to understand. But it's important to remember that the Bible is actually a collection of 66 different books spanning a number of different genres. There's history and prophecy, poetry, gospel, wisdom, letters, uh, none of these genres is modern scientific textbook, and so we shouldn't read it like one. Uh, and the book of Revelation is a specific type of literature called apocalypse. Uh, and apocalyptic literature is something our modern minds uh, aren't used to, isn't used to. Uh, we think apocalypse is bad. We think apocalypse is like catastrophe. But apocalypse, what it actually means, that word is unveiling. The title of the last book of the Bible is actually the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, or the revelation of of Jesus Christ, or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, the theologian Daryl Johnson says that the book of Revelation is a lifting of a cover, the opening of a door, the revealing of what's behind the curtain. It's literally the breaking through from hiddenness. And the author John of Revelation is actually writing a pastoral letter to be passed among seven ancient churches in what's now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to encourage them and give them hope in a world full of uncertainty and turmoil and conflict. Does that world sound familiar? Do you need some encouragement and hope today in a world full of uncertainty and turmoil and conflict? I know I do. Uh, John, the author of Revelation, encourages these churches by writing about his symbolic dreams and visions, revealing and unveiling God's heavenly perspective on two things on our worlds. One, the unseen realities of the future, and two, the unseen realities of the present. Daryl Johnson once again writes this. In Revelation, it reminds us that things are not as they seem. Or more precisely, things are not just as they seem. The passage that we're going to be looking at today from chapter 21 is how it ends. And I hope it gives us encouragement and hope as we live in challenging and confusing times, just as it gave the early church hope and encouragement. Before I read our passage today, first, I want to talk about the Muppets. The Muppets. Uh, about 10 years ago, when my kids were five and three years old, we took them to see the movie, The Muppets. Uh, and here's a poster for the movie. It should be coming up. Uh, those are the Muppets. And yes, that is uh, six-time Academy Award nominee Amy Adams standing next to a, a hand puppet named Animal that plays the drums. Um, if you missed this cinematic masterpiece, um, allow me to recap the story for you. Uh, an evil businessman named Tex Richman is going to demolish the Muppets Theater and evict them from the theater unless the Muppets can come up with $10 million. But the Muppets have disbanded at, by this time. And so the movie covers Kermit the Frog and his human friends traveling around, trying to get the gang back together so they can do a telethon in order to raise the money to save the theater. Uh, Kermit goes and visits Fozzie Bear and Gonzo and Animal and Dr. Bunsen Honeydew and his assistant Beaker and, of course, Miss Piggy, who is living in Paris at the time, working as the editor of Paris Vogue magazine. Uh, over the course of the movie, the Muppets face challenges and setbacks. They learn valuable lessons. And despite all the nefarious schemes of the evil Tex Richmond, in the very last scene of the movie, surprise, the Muppets are able to save their theater. Why am I telling you about the Muppets? Uh, when we saw this movie, Tex Richmond's evil scheme to evict the Muppets is revealed in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And my five-year-old starts crying because the Muppets are going to lose their theater. It's the saddest thing that this kid has ever seen on film. And my five-year-old continues to cry for the entire duration of the movie. An hour and 20 minutes just bawling, inconsolable, because the Muppets are going to lose their theater. My kid is just weeping because my kid doesn't know how the movie is going to end. My kid doesn't know that they're watching a kid's movie. 
uh, and that all kids' movies have happy endings. Uh, I know that because I'm old, and I've seen a lot of kids' movies, and I've seen a lot of Muppets movies. And so I can relax and know it's all going to work out in the end. Knowing how the Muppets movie is going to end changes our experience. Knowing how it's going to end changes our experience. Knowing how it's going to end gives us hope for the future. It allows us to persevere through the hard times in the present. It gives meaning to the challenges. We don't have to push and plot and scheme so hard. It puts everything in proper perspective. And I'm not talking about the Muppets movie anymore. Our passage today is from the book of Revelation. This is the second to last chapter in the very last book of the Bible, how it ends. If you're able, will you please join me in standing as I read from our passage today. Revelation chapter 21. The author John writing, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, behold, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe, wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne says, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. This is how it ends. This is the glorious picture of what the end looks like for those who know God. And if we have this picture in mind as we go through our days, all of our days, I think it'll change our perspective on how we live in the here and now. It gives us hope for the present, and it gives us hope for the future. And why does it give us hope? I think first because of this idea of new. Verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse five, and the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. A quick aside here, if you're stumbling on, why is the sea gone? Uh, the sea was traditionally seen as this place of chaos. In the beginning, you know, in Genesis one, God speaks and he brings order out of chaos. In Genesis 13, there's references to, remember that beast I talked about with the weird features? That actually, that beast comes up out of the sea. And so this place of chaos or evil is no more. And all things are new. There are two ways of thinking about something new. Uh, recently, my wife got a new phone, and last year we got a new kitchen. Uh, her old phone was like five years old, really beat up, wasn't getting security updates. And so she sent her old phone back for the credit, and she got a totally new phone. Totally new and different thing. Old phone was gone, replaced by an entirely new phone. That's one kind of new. Last year, we got a new kitchen. Uh, or we say we got a new kitchen. But we didn't just rip our old kitchen out of the house 
and uh, ship it off. And in the gaping hole that was left, drop in a replacement kitchen. We got a kitchen, new kitchen, but what we really did was, it was a renovation, a restoration. We restored some cabinets, cabinets put in some, uh, put in like a hood vent, got rid of part of a wall. Um, it was a transformation of our old kitchen into something new. When these verses talk about a new heaven and a new earth, making all things new, what kind of new do we think it's talking about? A new phone or a new kitchen? It is the second sense of new, like a renovated kitchen. God is not tossing out this earth and replacing it entirely, replacing it with something totally different. There is a promise of a new heaven and a new earth, but it is a restoration, a renovation, a transformation of what is already here. I've shown this slide a few times in previous sermons. I will continue to show this slide. This is the grand story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And the biblical story doesn't just end with redemption and salvation at Easter. And the biblical story doesn't end with escape or replacement. The biblical story, the narrative to which all of our lives belong, the narrative in which all of our lives find meaning ends with restoration. The restoration and glorious transformation of this world. This is true for our world and this is true for ourselves. The Apostle Paul writes this in his second letter to the Corinthian church. So if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. In Jesus Christ, we are new, meaning we are transformed and renewed. And not just us. Salvation and transformation isn't just for us as individuals. It's for the whole world and for all of history. I think this is so incredibly important um, for our perspective on the future and for our perspective on how we live now. Uh, over the last few decades, a theology of the rapture um, has become popular in American evangelical culture. And it's found in books and movies like Hal Lindsey's the, La the Late Great Planet Earth and the Left Behind series from the 90s. Um, but the rapture was not orthodox theology within the Christian church for the 1,900 years. Um, the rapture is never once mentioned in the book of Revelation. The idea of the rapture is that Christians get beamed up out of this world into a heavenly world. Uh, and the roots of this idea are actually found in ancient Greek philosophy, not the Bible. Uh, in Greek philosophi, the philosophy, the physical was bad and the spiritual was good. And so Greek dualism thought that the culmination of our lives would be that our spirit floats away from this earthly and transitory world to the heavenly and eternal. That's not the Bible. In the Bible, Jesus came in the flesh, in a body, to us, here. And he was resurrected in a body, in the flesh. And he ascended to heaven in a body, in a physical body. And his body was transformed, and it still had physical stars from his crucifixion. We don't get beamed up to heaven. Heaven comes here. The theologian G.E. Ladd wrote that the Bible, quote, always places man on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. 
You can see this reality in verse 2 of our passage today. Verse 2, the writer John saying, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The holy city is coming down out of heaven. We are not beamed up to heaven. The holy city comes down to us. The words of the Lord's Prayer that we prayed earlier is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The words of the prayer are not, beam us up to heaven, up, away, from here, away from this earth. This is how the theologian Brian Blunt puts it. Instead of believers being raptured up into the heavens, the city of God is lowered down onto the transformed earth. The ratification of the earth as a place of God's engagement and not a place from which to escape cannot be imaged in any stronger terms. Working for the transformation of the earth is important because the transformed earth is where God works even now to establish God's holy city and thus God's eschatological relationship with God's people. Eschatological is just a fancy way of saying relating to the end times. The earth is the place of God's engagement. It's not a place to escape. Working for the transformation of the earth is important because the transformed earth is where God is working even now. It's where God is working to establish his holy city, and it's where God has his relationship with us. Can you see how this one point makes a huge difference in how we as Christians live in our world now? How we engage and interact with our neighbors and our institutions in our planet. If we think we're getting beamed up out of here, then we can, create, create, we can treat God's creation and his people, the planet and the people, like they're disposable, single use. We can run this one into the ground, toss it, and get a replacement. But if indeed the city of God is coming to a transformed earth, then we have to interact with the planet and its people in a different way. I learned the other day from Pastor Pete Grigg that if we continue with current levels of plastic production and consumption, that by 2050, the year 2050, there'll be more plastic than fish in the ocean. I looked that up, and we are already one-third of the way there. Uh, if we're getting beamed up out of here, that doesn't matter. Uh, but if God's kingdom is to come on a restored and transformed earth, then it matters a lot. I think we have a unique position on this. And I don't think, um, and by we, I don't mean we as Christians. I think we as First Pres Honolulu, because God somehow, improbably, miraculously, somewhat ridiculously, has given us the gift of 246 acres of conservation land to steward. During service a few weeks ago, I announced our Hakukia Pilina workday on our property. And I was corrected afterwards that it wasn't a work day, it was a restoration day. And that's absolutely correct. Kathy mentioned it in the announcements, but here are some more photos. A few weeks ago, a number of us got out onto the property and we learned from experts how to restore our property. And in particular, we were managing albizia trees. Albizias are a particularly invasive species that grow 20 feet a year. They have super shallow roots, and incredibly brittle branches. 
And we have thousands on our property. Uh, but we learned how to strip the bark on the tree with a simple handsaw, and this will address and remove that invasive tree for good. There are about 50 of us there that day, and in the course of only about an hour and a half, we treated every single Albizia around the old 16th fairway. Here's the view across the pond. You can see all those um, barks being stripped. And we even learned how to manage the massive Albizias. You can see by the size of this trunk how big this Albizia tree is. It would cost us maybe $40,000 to get a crew out there onto the course to cut this tree down. And in 10 minutes, with nothing but a hatchet and a few drops of herbicide, JC from the Koalau Mountain Watershed Partnership took care of this tree for us for free. Correction, um, I said this and Jamie Grisbeck said, no, actually it's not free, it's probably about $3 worth of herbicide. So um, for $3 worth of herbicide and a hatchet, that tree will come down. If we can show one more picture or two more pictures, this is the second best picture of Restoration Day. You can see the size of that huge, huge Albizia tree in the back of this photo, that huge one in the back. And in the front with the orange tape, that's one of the 12 koa trees that we planted. The old, destructive, invasive Albizia tree removed, a new, beautiful, native koa tree planted. A new heaven and a new earth making all things new. Restoration. Amen? But wait, there's more. Because this is the best photo of Restoration Day. This is a photo of the people. Thank you for the many of you who were there that day. It's about 40 or 50 of us gathered before we started. And in this group, there are church members who have been members of this church for more than 20 years. And there's a family that literally took their new member vows the week before. And there's a couple that had just finished stick six. This was their stick seven. There are kids as young as eight, and there are senior adults who are much older than eight. The most encouraging thing to me was that we were joined that day by people who had nothing to do with First Press. Members of the community around us, an intern from the nonprofit Kupu, volunteers and staff from the Koalau Mountain Watershed Partnership and from the nonprofit Protect and Preserve Hawaii, a grad student in natural resource management from UH, Windward Community College students, a couple who lives in Heia and just happened to see a social media post. The Restoration Day was actually called um, the Pilina Restoration Day. Hakuhia is the name of what we're calling kind of the, the, the development of the property, the use of the property. Pilina in Hawaiian means connected, binded together. And I know that there are many who are excited about what will happen out there on the property. And I know that there are many who are skeptical about what will happen on the property. But what gave me great hope that day was the ability to work side by side with our neighbors from the community who are not Christians and not part of our church. And they came to our property not to sit in a Sunday service, but to help us restore the land. We're living in a particularly divisive and politicized time. And I think our task as a church now more than ever is to figure out how to communicate and demonstrate God's love for our neighbors and for our island. And that's why that was the best photo. Because the most important part of restoration to me isn't the koa trees, 
It's the people. Church isn't a building you go to. Church is the people we are on a journey of faith with. And that day, a whole bunch of new people came to church. And what I heard from them was surprising. What I heard from them was gratitude and appreciation. They were so grateful for what we were doing. They were grateful to have the opportunity to be on our beautiful property. They were grateful that we were addressing the invasive species and caring for the Aina. They were grateful we invited them and wanted to work with them. We'll be having Pelina Restoration Days every month, except in June, and the next one's on May 28th. Come along and invite someone who isn't part of the church to join you. A huge thank you to Kelly Miyamura and particularly to Jamie Grisbeck for all their work in putting together these days and these partnerships as we go forward. And this is a perfect counterintuitive segue into the next part of our passage, which is that the unveiling at the end is a picture of a city. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The big reveal isn't that we get to be one-on-one with God in the end. And it's not that we get to be one-on-one with God in some idyllic field or on a mountaintop or in a spa. Uh, The picture is of a city. And cities are inherently social. Cities are full of people. And this picture of the holy city is the ideal of the perfect community. This is not the Garden of Eden again with just Adam and Eve. The new heaven and the new earth features a city. And if you're an introvert like me, I'm sorry, but the end is not going to be you just sitting around by yourself reading books. It's going to be life lived together in redeemed community. So we should start getting used to that now. Even more than that, the city is a bride. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't know that many cities that look like a bride. Maybe it's just this one. And why a bride? The holy city could have been described as full of splendor and riches, streets full of gold, overflowing with wealth. But it's not. And it could have been described as full of angels bowing down to it in reverence to its power and prestige. But it's not. What's chosen here isn't wealth or splendor or power or even righteousness. It's a bride, the intimate, tender, loving relationship between a married couple. A bride highlights God's profound love for us and for the people and for the world. It's like going to a famous athlete's house, and when you walk in, what they're most interested in isn't showing off their fancy house or their fancy cars or all their awards and trophies. What they first and most want to do is introduce you to their spouse. And who is this bride? It's us. We get to share at this scene in the finale with the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Us, ordinary people, along with the ordinary people from those original seven churches that John was writing to. Somehow, improbably, God chooses us to be his bride. We participate in the unseen realities of the future and the unseen realities of the present. And what are those realities? See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and pain and crying will be no more. For the first things have passed away. As encouraging as this sounds to us, it was even more so to the original readers. Because this is an echo and a culmination and a fulfillment of hundreds of years of expectations and hopes from prophets and offers, authors that they would be familiar with from the Old Testament scriptures. In the third book of the Bible, Moses records God saying this in Leviticus, I will place my dwelling in your midst. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Hundreds of years later, the prophet Isaiah writes about God. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Isaiah continues saying that God, from God, for I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. Over hundreds of years in different places through different people, different prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, God repeats again and again this promise that comes to fruition in our passage today. My dwelling place shall be over them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus himself proclaims during the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And all those hopes are realized in this vision in the revelation of the future. Every tear wiped away. Death, no more. Mourning and crying and pain, no more. God himself dwelling among his people. Sorry, that's wrong. All those verses from Leviticus and prophets was that they will be his people. God dwelling among his people, singular. But look again at this verse from 20, Revelation 21.3. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. Peoples, plural. All throughout the Old Testament, it was his people. And here, now at the end, it is his peoples, plural. I was not born Jewish into the nation of Israel. I don't think many of us here were. And in this vision, God is dwelling not with one nation, but his love is offered to all peoples. Not just Israel, not just First Pres, all peoples. In light of this vision of the unseen realities of the future and the unseen realities of the present, what does it mean for us now? Last week, Pastor Steve preached about Jesus healing a man with leprosy and how God rewrites our story. And when Jesus heals the man, that was actually step four of four. Jesus notices the man, and then he has compassion for him, and then he touches him, and then Jesus heals him. And we may not be able to heal like Jesus does, but we can do the first three. We can notice, and we can have compassion, and we can be present and extend a hand. We can hope for the future, and we can hope in the present, and we can join God in his work of restoration happening even now. I want to show you a clip from the program 60 Minutes on um, Mercy Ships. It's a Christian nonprofit that is essentially just a big hospital on a boat. And this clip that you'll see is just a bit of this 15 minute, 60 minutes um, special. It's only about a minute and a half, and it's about a nurse. Uh, Mercy Ships is a ship that travels around West Africa and provides surgery and healthcare for people in need. It provides surgery for cleft palates and benign tumors and cataracts. It literally gives sight to the blind. And the doctors, the doctors and nurses on the staff and the staff all uh, are Christians, and none of them are paid. Um, they all pay their own way to provide healthcare to those most in need. They raise um, funds and support like missionaries. 
In this clip, the patient you'll see has a benign tumor, and it looks horrific, but it's actually just tooth enamel that didn't stop growing. And in the US, a dentist would take care of it before it became a problem. But in places without regular access to healthcare, uh, it becomes a disfiguring tumor. What the nurse does in this clip is something that I think we all can do. Not provide healthcare on a floating hospital, um, but radiate and communicate God's love for people and his plans for the restoration of our world. I find what she says and does so powerful and so instructive for us as a people of faith, a people who follow Jesus. I hear your voice, the nurse says. The touch is unmistakable. And she explains, you find their eye, you find a way to connect with them. I think in doing these simple things with the people around us, we lift the cover, we open the door, we open the curtains, we unveil what is hidden, and we participate in the revelation of Jesus Christ. The last verse in our passage today reads, and then he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. The unveiling, the revelation, is of a person. The title of the last book of the Bible is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. Samaritans were the historical enemies of the Jews. And Jesus offers her living water. John, the Gospel of John says this, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Are you thirsty today? Do you know anyone who is? To the thirsty, Jesus offers water, living water, as a gift from the spring of the water of life, a free gift of eternal life offered today and every day to all peoples until the complete arrival of a new heaven and a new earth and the holy city comes down from heaven to our restored earth. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me now? God, you are good and glorious and you are at work in our world, redeeming and restoring. We thank you that you offer the free gift of salvation to any who would accept it. We thank you that you offer the water of eternal life. And we thank you that you invite us to participate in the work that you are doing to love and care for the world, to bring peace into the world. May you use us, Lord. Lord, may you be glorified now and forevermore. And all God's children say, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like prayer, there will be members from our prayer team who would pray for you out on that black back lanai. And if you are in um, online, you can click the chat button for, to receive prayer. 
there is coffee at our Hebrews coffee bar, and I hear rumors um, that the choir will be rehearsing today after the service over by the coffee bar. So uh, please check that out if you are an old-time choir member, if you'd like to join. Now please receive this final blessing. May the love of God, our Father, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. This sermon brings all new meaning to the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. And like Chris said, church is not about a building. Our church, the larger church in general, is its people. Let's help all peoples find the love of Jesus. If you want to catch up on or listen again to previous services, visit our websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. You can also find First Prez sermons on most major podcast services and on YouTube. First Prez invites you to church. There are two ways to worship, in person and online. Services are Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. at the Ko'olau campus and at 10 a.m. at the Vine in Kaka'ako or online at fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. Remember, when you visit the First Prez websites, sign up for emails for links to sermons, daily devotionals, church news and updates, and lots more. And as always, if there's anything First Press can do for you, please reach out through the websites or just call 808-532-1111. For Senior Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Press, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2022 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.